Grace and peace to you all this morning. I am Captain Roger from the Salvation Army Grass Valley Corps, and I know that you are looking forward to learning about Stephen in the Book of Acts, but we're taking one last week off from our journey through the early history of the Christian Church to look instead at where that history is found. We're going to spend just a few minutes trying to understand what's up with the Bible anyway. Does it even matter? Isn't it just a dusty old book full of really boring lists of things we're not supposed to do and then God smiting people and junk like that? Well, I can tell you my answers to those questions, but no one really cares what I think, right? So instead of lecturing you about my opinion, let's play a game. There are three questions. You're going to have to score yourself, but if you get all three of them correct, you can email me to let me know and I will send you a prize. Now, we're going to play three quick rounds of my favorite game, In the Bible or Not in the Bible. All you need to do is decide whether the scenario I describe is something that is in a standard copy of the Christian Bible. And if you think it is, then you would vote in. And if you think I'm just making it up, then you vote not. Got it? Ready? All right, first question. In the Bible or not in the Bible? Even though idols were forbidden, God once had his people make a statue of a snake out of bronze and then put it on a pole over the camp so that people could look at it and be healed. Bronze snake people used for healing. In the Bible or not in the Bible? Got an answer? All right, this one was in the Bible. Numbers chapter 21, we read this. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on the pole. And when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. I know, kind of crazy, huh? You should go read the whole story in Numbers chapter 21 because it's awesome. And also because Jesus quotes it in John chapter 3, just before that verse that we all memorize as kids, you know, the one about God loving the world. In John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Jesus says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So that was the first one. Did you miss this one? I'll tell you what. If you get two out of three correct, we'll call it a win, all right? Two out of three, and then you can email me for a prize. Second scenario. In the Bible or not in the Bible? The breath of Jesus kills the unlawful. I'm sorry, what? Am I saying that the Savior needs a toothbrush? Well, I'll let you decide. The breath of Jesus kills the unlawful. Is this in the Bible or not in the Bible? The breath of Jesus kills the unlawful. This game is weird, isn't it? All right, you got an answer? Yeah, all right. It has nothing to do with needing a toothbrush, but this is actually in the Bible. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Now, the word that the NIV translates as overthrow here is the Greek word anireo, meaning to put to death or to kill. So this is totally in the Bible. Remember, it only takes two out of three to win the prize, but even if you missed one of the first two... Or both of the first two. You know what? Give the third one a shot. Here's number three. 
Number three, God tells Nineveh he's going to fling poop at her. God tells Nineveh he's going to fling poop at her. Like an angry chimpanzee, God is going to fling excrement at the people of Nineveh. Heck, it sounds horrible. But is that in the Bible or is that not in the Bible? Yeah, you probably guessed at this point. That is absolutely in the Bible. It's from the prophet Nahum, chapter 3, verse 6. I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. Did you get it? Of course, all three of these were in the Bible. Why would I waste any of our precious time talking about something that's not in the Bible? Remember, if you got them all right, or even if you just got two out of three, be sure to shoot me an email with your mailing address, and I will get a prize on its way to you soon. Now, why did we bother with this exercise? Because you only learn these kind of things by actually reading the Bible, which is something that almost no one does. And frankly, I include officers and other pastors in that statement. There is a profound difference between writing a sermon or creating or leading a study and reading the Bible. When we prep for things like that, we look at really narrow pieces of scripture, like a few verses or a passage. Um, once in a while, maybe a whole chapter. But examining pieces isn't like reading or hearing the whole. You've probably heard the story of three blind men trying to understand what an elephant is like. They each went out and they tried to identify it by what they could feel. One ended up holding the elephant's trunk. So he said, well, an elephant, it, it's just like a hose. Another one touched the elephant's side and he said, oh, the elephant, it's like a wall covered in stucco. The last one got a hold of the elephant's tail. He said, oh, an elephant's like a rope. I don't know what's wrong with you two. Now, while each of them was right about their piece, none of them actually had any understanding about the elephant because you need to understand the whole of something, not just bits. And that's the Bible. The Bible is an elephant. It's this great raging beast, which is moving around while we're trying to get a handle on it. And if we ever, if we never do more than, than touch a piece here or a piece there, we will never truly be able to understand this whole message that God has given us. And if you don't have a good picture of the whole, you're going to be like that blind man holding the elephant's tail, claiming that an elephant is a short piece of rope. The next thing you know, you're going to be claiming that the God of the Old Testament is an angry deity who authorizes Israel to slaughter thousands of Canaanites. And then Jesus comes along in the New Testament and says that from then on, we need to love our neighbors instead of spearing them. And that might seem a logical conclusion if you've only ever learned bits here and there. But the truth is that the same God of mercy is portrayed from the very beginning to the very end if you take a step back to see the whole elephant. Here's the problem, though. The Bible is a really big book. In fact, it's a whole library of them. There are 66 books in between those covers that make up the Bible. Most people don't own 66 books, frankly. Most people will never read 66 books. So how can we find a way to read or maybe even reread the Bible without getting bored, giving up, or just going crazy? Did you know the Bible was written in three languages? The Old Testament was almost entirely in ancient Hebrew. The New was mostly in ancient Greek, and both of them have a little Aramaic mixed in. That was kind of the Greco-Roman era common language, Aramaic, at least in the early years. But we don't need to know ancient languages to read the Bible, right? Because we have the benefit these days of having the Bible available to us in English, which is good because it means that we can read it even 
though we don't know any other languages. Uh, but it's also bad because a lot of what we read in English is wrong. Many of the words don't translate. Hmm. Let me tell you what I mean. <clears throat> I'm going to give you a full year of seminary training about Bible translation in five minutes or less. Five minutes or less. Set a stopwatch. Time me. You ready? Set. Go. Some translators try to translate word for word. So they look at the Hebrew word, kokab, and they translate it to the English word, star. And those words both refer to a point of light in the sky, which is good. Same meaning. So it must be a good translation, right? Maybe. Sometimes, though, there aren't words that mean the same thing. For example, there are four Greek words that get translated by the English word love. So if I were to say, I love pizza, and then tell you that I love my wife or that I love my enemies, that would get confusing, wouldn't it? If I'm loving pizza and my wife the same way, something is very, very wrong. In Greek, though, there wouldn't be that kind of confusion because there is a different word for each of those relationships. So in this instance, the words in Greek have a narrower definition than the English, but sometimes a word means something larger or broader or harder to translate. And there are examples of this in every language. And I'm going to horribly mispronounce this because I have never been a good speaker of German. But the German word Torschluss Panik, Torschluss Panik, it literally translates as gate closing panic. But the word actually means the fear of diminishing opportunities as one ages. Gate closing panic or the fear of diminishing opportunities as one ages. This would be an instance in which word-for-word -word translation would lead the English speaker to completely miss what's actually being said. And that's why most versions, most translations, try to balance word translation with idea translation. And this is called dynamic translation. Instead of only trying to capture the word, they try to translate the meaning. The trick there being what exactly it is that something means. And one translator may believe it means one thing, while another may believe differently, or perhaps think that a different set of English words describes the meaning better. Now, there's a third style of translation, where the writer reads the original and then tries to capture the meaning without bothering to translate the words. This is called thought-for-thought, thought or paraphrase translation. And it's not necessarily wrong, but the question that this raises is, how far can you get away from the original words of Scripture and still have it be the Word of God? Let me give you an example of each. A uh, more word-for-word -word translation of 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, says this, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. That's the New American Standard Bible translation. Let, let's listen to the same thing in the New International Version. See, uh, New, New American Standard, that's pretty word for word. New International Version, it's more dynamic. This is the same verse. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Eh, not too different. Maybe a little bit easier to understand, though, right? And now the thought-for-thought thought translation of the Message Bible. This is, again, exactly the same verse. 
Lust for money brings trouble, but nothing. I'm sorry. I need to start that over. Lust for money brings trouble and nothing but trouble. Going down that path, some lose their footing in the faith completely and live to regret it bitterly ever after. I mean, that's a huge difference. All three are translating exactly the same thing, and all three say more or less the same thing, but at the same time, they're all pretty different. And when you read them, because they are a little bit different or a lot different, it can make you think about what's being said in a different way. So why does this matter? Because you're not going to read something you can't understand. And you don't want to read something that teaches you the wrong thing, either on purpose or by accident. So let me talk real quickly about the main translations you're likely to see in the hands of English reading Americans. By the way, check your stopwatch and see if I beat five minutes. These are the main translations you're going to see in the hands of your English reading American friends at your core, your church, or just among your circle of friends. If you happen to be someone who carries a Bible with you to work, other than pastors, I don't know any, anyway, the King James version was originally published in uh, 1611 by England's James the first. It's a fairly word for word translation. It was written in kind of a high or Royal English, which a lot of people still love, even though it hasn't really been spoken for 600 years. All those these and nows and prithees and hitherto's. I mean, it was a great translation at the time. It used some of the best scholars of the day, only one of whom was dead at the time he was supposedly translating. Most of the text was actually taken, like straight taken, from the Geneva Bible, which had been published in uh, the year 1560. People really liked the translation, but James didn't like the footnotes in the Geneva Bible, many of which were very political in nature, mostly against the idea of royalty, like kings. So James's translation did away with those footnotes and outlawed the other one. Hmm. The King James Version has remained popular because it was the most available and recognizable translation for about 350 years. And there are still denominations and churches today which refuse to recognize any other translation as being the Word of God. I had a seminary professor at the, my uh, Southern Baptist Seminary who said, Hey, this is the Bible Jesus used, so it's the one we're going to use. Yeah. Well, I admire their dedication. These folks are just plain wrong for two very important reasons. First, we found earlier manuscripts of many of the books, um, earlier copies of, of the Bible than we had at the time that they made that translation. So along the past four centuries, we've been able to correct some copying errors and stuff like that. I mean, it's nothing big, but since we're talking about our understanding of what God has said to us, it seems important to be as accurate as possible. Second, English is a fast-changing language, and the meaning behind some of the words has changed. King James Version is hard to read, and it's hard to understand, and even in a good translation at this point, and it really should just be avoided if you're not an avid reader of Shakespeare, who is the other, uh, the only other old English literature that we burden modern hearers with without changing it to use words that we use now. Second version, the New International Version. This has been the Evangelical Church's favorite translation for about 50 years now. 
It's had some good updates and some bad ones because it uses some translators from a set of very conservative denominations and their decisions about how to translate some ideas and about which words to use tend to reflect their politics as much as their careful translation. Now, please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying conservative is bad or liberal is good or anything like that. I'm just saying that when you choose too many folks from one side or the other, their biases tend to bend that translation. And I love the current edition of the NIV, the uh, 2011 translation. And while we could nitpick at some of the sections, this tends to be the version that I preach from. It's fairly modern, it's understandable language, and it's well translated in uh, most all of its particulars. All translations have rough spots. And this one, the New International Version, it's got less than most. It's written at about a high school level. Most people in the Western world can read it and enjoy it. It's not generally the one that I turn to if I'm doing my own study. I generally use the New Revised Standard Version. It's my favorite translation. It does an excellent job of balancing word and idea translation. But unfortunately, it uses a high college level vocabulary, so it's not as reader friendly as most translations. I find myself looking up words all the time to make sure that I am understanding it the way that it is written. Um, like the NIV, this kind of has an evangelical slant to it, but it's not as pronounced. So it's not bad to read, but it's not going to be as comfortable for most folks. The New Living Translation is another favorite. Uh, it leans more towards capturing ideas than words, but it is written in about the most modern English. It's the translation that we keep around to give away at our core because it is the best Bible for someone who has no Bible background or church experience. It's written at a level most people can read, and it tends to sound like a novel. It was my favorite for Bible studies and for youth group teaching because it sounds like the real world, which is what the original scripture sounded like to the people of their day. So it's not perfect, but it's not bad. Then there's the message translation. Uh, Eugene Peterson was a pastor. He wanted to make the Bible more accessible to the people in his Sunday school class. So he started to translate the original languages into very descriptive, poetic, and modern English. He wrote it to be read out loud so that we could hear the word of God the way the original hearers did. He's got passages that are rendered so beautifully. They'll just worm their way into your soul and rest there while you experience the Bible in a fuller way. But I wouldn't recommend the message translation as a study Bible because this kind of translation is not as precise as the others. Using the message as a reading Bible, which helps you enjoy what you're reading, can be a great thing for people who just want to hear the story of Scripture, though. And all five of these translations are good for someone who's trying to read the Bible, even though I personally would try to steer you away from the King James Version because of its age and language. The others are easier to get into and more understandable, but King Jimmy does have centuries of history, and there are a lot of older folks around <laughs> like me, who could help you figure out what it means because that's all they ever had. Now, there are innumerable other translations out there. That means a lot. But I would caution you to read a variety of reviews of each one before you pick one up. There's some pretty popular translations that are written in such a way that they advance certain ideas or points of belief instead of just trying to lay out what was being said. 
for example, I don't use the English Standard Version because the translators chose to intentionally reword some things to protect the idea of male dominance over women. It came from a denomination where it is a common teaching and they chose to change some things to reinforce their belief. And I don't believe, personally, I do not believe it is proper to make the Bible say what you want it to say instead of letting it challenge your thinking. And there are other translations that do similar things. Usually they're not huge changes. They just change a word here or there, or they leave something out. And most do this in just a few places, but it steers the way people might understand what they read. It's really easy to let your personal biases sway the words that you choose when you translate from one language to another, which is why there's a saying among Bible scholars that all translations are lies. Here's what matters. Just be careful. Read more than one version, especially if you understand something differently than someone else does. Be open as much as you can be. Be open to the fact that your mind can be changed as your understanding changes. That doesn't mean you're losing your faith. It probably means you're strengthening it. Faith is a lot like a muscle. When you use your muscles, the little fibers that make them up, um, make up muscles, they, they break, they tear, and then they grow back in different ways, becoming stronger as they do. The soreness you feel after you've done a, a good workout, it's all the broken tissue and, and the new strength that you feel after months of training, that's the new tissue that's adapted to being used in new ways. Faith is just a spiritual version of muscle tissue. It, it breaks and rebuilds and strengthens the same way that our physical muscles do. The ideas and beliefs of a new faith will often be destroyed and rebuilt a thousand ways as they mature and grow. Reading God's word is an important part of working out your faith. It's because the Bible matters. And when you really get into it, it is interesting, I promise. If you need help figuring out how you can best get into it, ask me for some suggestions. Like if you're going to read through the book of Genesis, when you get to Genesis, uh, right towards the end of Genesis chapter four and into Genesis five, it's got one of those uh, genealogy lists. A lot of people get there, they start to read it and they're like, oh, I don't want to read this. Well, you know what? Don't read it then skip over it. There's my first suggestion. I got a whole bunch of other suggestions that help people figure out how they can best learn from the Bible. We all learn differently. And I would love to help you figure out how you could make regular Bible reading part of your life. We all need to spend some time in the word. Comments or questions? Post them here. We love to discuss this stuff in person and online. I'm going to read one last passage for you right now. This is from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. It says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's my deepest and most sincere prayer that you take this to heart, put it to work in your life so that you can be well prepared as a servant of God and that you, so that your good works will spill out to change the world. Hey, grace and peace to each of you today and all week long.
Remember, wherever you go, you've got nothing to fear because God is already there. Just go with God. See you next time.